We're extremely privileged to have Sharon O'Toole and Earl Redman with us today. Um, many of you will have seen his excellent book uh, two or three uh, years ago, it was published, about the Knights of Baha'u'llah, i.e. the first Baha'i to set foot or to become established in any significant country or island. But that's only a very small part of the oeuvre of this couple. And I say this couple because I know full well that nobody could write as much of such value as Earl has in the last few years without Sharon being monstrously supportive. I doubt if he's made a cup of tea for himself over the past few years because he has some published some excellent books about Abdu'l-Bahá. And they've come at just the right time. You will remember that Abdu'l-Bahá was only freed by the Young Turk Rebellion of 1908 and planned then to travel over the West. And Earl has, as a centenary of each part of the visit occurred, Earl was backing up our understanding of this visit by learned but interesting books about Abdu'l-Bahá's travels. And next year, of course, we will be coming to the centenary of the master's passing, of Abdu'l-Bahá's passing. And Earl is right there with a book for every purpose. So basically, the last 10 years of Abdu'l-Bahá's life, our understanding, which we're going to need to be able to crank up for next year, we owe to a great extent to Earl. Earl um, and Sharon both come originally from Alaska and spent six years um, pioneering, that's as Baha'i um, teachers, if you like, in Chile, then went back to Alaska and since the 1990s have lived in County Cavan, where um, Sharon's grandparents came from. Those of you who share my enthusiasm for rugby will know that Cavan is one of three Ulster counties, which is in the Republic. Um, so we're incredibly privileged to have Earl and Sharon with us, and I hope we're all going to make lots of notes. Earl, Sharon. Well, we're up and going. Like you said, we're going to be talking about Abdu'l-Bahá tonight. And just give you a little outlook at who he was. Uh, First of all, he was Baha'u'llah's eldest son. Of course, Baha'u'llah is the prophet or founder of the Baha'i faith. We don't call them prophets. We call them manifestations of God because they manifest the attributes and the will of God. And when Baha'u'llah, before he passed away, he wrote a will. And in this will, he told all the people, all the Baha'is to turn to Abdu'l Baha if they needed to know anything. And he has some rather interesting quotations. He said, whoso turneth towards him hath turned towards God, and whoso turneth away from him hath turned away from my beauty. He also wrote, all must obey him, all must turn unto him. He is the ex-founder of my book and he is informed of my purpose. Whatsoever he says is correct. So this is the first time in religious history that the prophet or the manifestation of God has designated a specific successor. None of the other religions have ever had somebody who's been named unequivocally. So now, 
Baha'u'llah is a very special, or Abdul Baha is a very special person. He's not a manifestation of God or a prophet, but neither is he really like a human. He's kind of like the perfect human. And Baha'u'llah calls, calls him the mystery of God. He also gave him other titles, such as the master or the perfect exemplar. And we use the title perfect exemplar because he acted toward other people like we're supposed to be acting as Baha'is. And so we follow his examples on how we taught people, how he showed them love and this sort of thing. So now I'm gonna pass across to Sharon for a short little bio biography of Abdu'l-Bahá. Uh, Abdu'l-Bahá was born into a very loving and wealthy family in Tehran in May of 1844, on the very same day that the Baha'i faith began. Several eventful years later in January, 1853, when Baha'u'llah was exiled to Baghdad, his extended family traveled with him, including eight-year-old Abdu'l-Bahá, who would never again see the country of his birth. It was about this time that he recognized the station of his father. This would be the beginning for him of 55 years as a prisoner until the Young Turk Rebellion of 1908, when he was finally allowed his freedom from confinement to the Aka Haifa area of Palestine in what is now Israel. In 1863, when Baha'u'llah and his family were further exiled from Baghdad to Constantinople and Adrianople in Turkey, 19-year-old Abdu'l-Bahá would travel ahead and organize shelter and food for the group as well as for the animals. Five years later, shortly after Baha'u'llah and his family had been finally exiled to the prison city of Akka, Baha'u'llah entrusted his son with his mail. Abdu'l-Bahá would write an answer to a letter and show it to his father before then being sent. This started his training until Baha'u'llah died in 1892, when in his will and testament, Baha'u'llah appointed Abdu'l-Bahá as his successor and interpreter of his writings. In 1910, Abdu'l-Bahá left Palestine for Egypt and then on for the next three years to the United Kingdom, Europe, and North America before returning to Palestine where he remained until his passing in 1921. Okay, from that, I think we'll go on to a description of uh, Abdu'l-Bahá by a person who was not a Baha'i. We of the so-called Christian lands think perhaps that if Christ were to appear again upon the earth, the good news would burden the telegraph, that his words and daily life would be marshaled forth under double headlines for our convenient perusal at breakfast or on the rapid transit trains, giving us the interesting information without interrupting our important occupations. Ah no, but we deceive ourselves. The man of Nazareth might pursue his holy life on the banks of the Jordan and the shores of Galilee for a generation of men, but the faintest rumor of him would not reach our ministers or our stockbrokers, our churches, or our exchanges. Imagine that we are in an ancient house in the still more ancient city of Akka, which was for a month my home. The room in which we are faces the opposite wall of a narrow paved street which an active man might clear at a single bound. Above is the bright sun of Palestine. To the right, a glimpse of the old seawall and the blue Mediterranean. As we sit, we hear a singular sound rising from the pavement 30 feet below. 
It is like the murmur of human voices and increasing. We open the window and look down. We see a, a crowd of human beings with patched and tattered garments. It is a noteworthy gathering. Many of these men are blind, many more are pale, emaciated, or aged. Some are on crutches, some so feeble that they can hardly walk. Most of the women are closely veiled. There are perhaps a hundred in this gathering. A door opens and a man comes out. He is of middle stature, strongly built. He wears flowing light colored robes. On his head is a light buff fez with a white cloth wound around it. He is perhaps 60 years of age. His long gray hair rests on his shoulders. His forehead is broad, full, and high. His nose slightly aquiline. His mustaches and beard, the latter full, though not heavy, nearly white. His eyes are gray and blue, large, and both soft and penetrating. His bearing is simple, but there is grace, dignity, and even majesty about his movements. He passes through the crowd, and as he goes, utters words of salutation. He stations himself at a narrow angle of the street and motions to the people to come toward him. As they come, they hold their hands extended. In each open palm, he places some small coins. He knows them all. He caresses them with his hand on the face, on the shoulders, on the head. Some he stops and questions. This scene you may see almost any day of the year in the streets of Akka. You may see the poor of Akka gathered at one of the shops where clothes are sold, receiving cloaks from the master. On feast days, he visits the poor in their homes. He chats with them, inquires into their health and comfort, mentions by name those who are absent, and leaves gifts for all. Nor is it the beggars only that he remembers. Those respectable poor who cannot beg, but must suffer in silence, those whose daily labor will not support their families, to these he sends bread secretly. This man who gives so freely must be rich, you think? No, or otherwise. Once his family was the wealthiest in all Persia. But this friend of the lowly, like the Galilean, has been oppressed by the great for 50 years. He and his family have been exiles and prisoners. Their property has been confiscated. Now that he has not much, he must spend little for himself that he may give to the poor. His garments are usually of cotton and the cheapest that can be bought. For more than 34 years, this man has been a prisoner at Akka, but his jailers have become his friends. The governor of the city, the commander of the army corps, respect and honor him as though he were their brother. No man's opinion or recommendation has greater weight with him. He is the beloved of the city, high and low. And how could it be otherwise? For to this man, it is the law, as it was to Jesus of Nazareth, to do good to those who injure him. Have we yet heard of anyone in lands which boast the name of Christ who lived that life? The master is as simple as his soul is great. He claims nothing for himself, neither comfort, nor honor, nor repose. Three or four hours of sleep suffice him. All the rem remainder of his time and all his strength are given to the succor of those who suffer in spirit or in body. I am, he says, the servant of God. 
Such is Abbas Effendi, the master of Akka. So that's a view from a, <clears throat> a non-Baha'i. This is a view from a Baha'i of Abdul Baha. I saw a strikingly handsome man, tall and kingly. He wore a white fez with a small turban kerchief wound round. This, the symbol of wisdom and learning among Mohammedans, was the only outward insignia of his station. He had the stride and freedom of a king or shepherd. My impression of him was that of a lion, a kingly, masterful man of the most sweet and generous disposition. I'd formed an idea of Jesus as very meek, humble, lowly, gentle, quiet, soft, and sweet. And I looked for just such a man. Another man, I have revised my idea of Jesus. And now as I read his words, I see that one of the past, a man of authority, whose words were clear and forceful, penetrating the hearts as with a two-edged sword. Okay, now one thing that Abdu'l-Bah had was intuition. Now we all have intuition at one level or the other. Men have it, women have a lot more of it. But Abdu'l-Bah had a whole lot more than that. And just a couple examples of what kind of uh, intuition this was. When he was on his way from Europe to North America, he was offered a chance to sail on the Titanic. And he didn't do it. He took an old slow boat called the Cedric. Well, when he got over to North America, of course, everybody wanted to know it had, it had just sunk. It sunk while he was on his way. So he wanted to know, people want to know, why didn't you take it? And his response was, I was asked to sail upon the Titanic, but my heart did not prompt me to do so. And on another occasion, he said, God sends a feeling of misgiving to my heart. So he listens to, to his heart. He listens to his intuition. On another case, he was in Chicago and he was supposed to go to Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. And, but he was giving a talk that evening. And he talked and he talks. And in the back of the room, his secretaries are starting to get pretty agitated because they knew how long it would take to get to the train station to catch the train up to Kenosha. Well, he just kept talking and they couldn't get his attention. He wouldn't pay any attention to him whatsoever. And next thing they knew, They'd, he'd gone overtime, and they knew they couldn't make the train. Well, as soon as it was impossible to make the train, he stopped talking, and they all go to the train station. So they're having to sit there and wait. And all the secretaries are really despondent because they missed their train, and now they have to wait for a while. Well, after a while, the next train went up. They hadn't gotten very far on their way when they found what happened to the first train. It had a head-on collision with another train. So that's, that's intuition. Now, one th thing that's really fascinating is when you're talking about Abdul Baha's, what happened when people met him? And there were all sorts of reactions when people came into his presence. Some people just were in tears. Other people would be paralyzed. They couldn't talk. They couldn't move. They just stood there. Some people found themselves at his feet, prone on at his feet, not understanding how they got there. They didn't remember getting down there. But everybody seemed to get kind of what they needed to get. Now, there was a German fellow. Uh, he was invited by Abdu Baha to go to Paris and meet him there. So he and his wife went. And when they, they were taken into this see Abdu Baha with uh, Lady Blomfield, she was an early English Baha'i. Well, she went up to Abdu Baha, and the first thing she did was she knelt down in front of him. 
And Frederick looked at that and he says, I can't do that. I can't kneel down in front of another man. Well, Lady Blomfield walked away. Frederick walks up to Abdaba and promptly kneels down in front of him. <laughs> and when he finished his, inter his interview, they, he walked away and some of the people asked, I thought you said you couldn't bow down in front of another man. He says, I got there. I couldn't do anything else. There was too much power. So learned a little bit about humility. Then there was Agnes Parsons. She's kind of the epitome of learning about humility. Agnes was a Washington DC Baha'i, one of the early ones, extremely wealthy. Uh, and she knew her station. Her station was way up here. Everybody else was someplace down below her. Well, she heard all these stories of Abdu Baha, and she says, this man can't be real. So when she went on pilgrimage in 1910, her avowed reason was to debunk all the myths about Abdu Baha. Well, she gets there, and they kept, waiter, kept her waiting for a long time. And of course, she got really upset about this because she was very wealthy, very important, and to be kept waiting was not something she was used to. Well, finally, she was taken in to see Abdu Baha, she walked into the room and he looked up at her and she said, she wrote in her own words, the first thing that happened was it was like a lightning bolt went from his eyes to her eyes and boom, she collapses on the floor. Next thing she knows, Abdu'l-Bahá is picking her up. And she indicated that she learned a little about what humility was because she recognized that his station was the one up here and her station was the one down there. Well, one of the things that happened to most people when they came into Abdu'l-Bahá's presence is they would forget all the questions they wanted to ask. And sometimes there were reasons for this because he wanted to tell them what they needed to know, not what they wanted to know. But one of these people who heard about this was Sarah Farmer. She's the one who started the Green Acre Summer School. Well, she'd, she'd heard about this, so she thought, well, I'm smarter than that. So she wrote all her questions down on a piece of paper put that in her Bible because she knew she'd take her Bible when she went to see Abdu'l-Bahá. Well, the next morning, word came across to her room at five o'clock. He's ready to see you. Of course, she was still horizontal. <laughs> so she jumps up, jumps into her clothes, runs out of the room, and you know what she left on her nightstand, that little Bible with all her questions. So now she's sitting in the presence of Abdu'l-Bahá and can't remember a single one of her questions. And she's desperately trying to remember, think of something she can ask. And finally, Abdu'l-Bahá turns to his secretary and says, tell her the answer to her first question is this. And he proceeds to answer the questions in the order she wrote them down. Uh, then we'll talk about George and Rose Winterburn. They were an older American couple. Well, not from my point of view, older, but <laughs> more elderly, 50s and 60s. Well, they left and they had a very interesting pilgrimage. They took off from New York and they got to Paris. When they got to Paris, they received a cable from Abdu'l-Bahá that the enemies of the faith were making lots of attacks and they, they should wait and not come. So they waited a few months. Then the permission came and they continued on. They got to Alexandria in Egypt. Again, another message, too dangerous, don't come. It was a full year from the time they left New York before they finally arrived in, in Akka. And then they had five whole days there. But Rose had, she was very worried. She'd heard about what happened to people when they walked into Adabah's presence. You know, how they'd be in tears or they'd be on the floor in front of him. And she thought these were undignified and she really hoped she didn't have to go through one of these. So this is what happens. She said the entrance into the Holy Presence came as simply and naturally as into that of some dear friend. We wondered somewhat, my husband and I, for we had thought it impossible to meet him 
whom our hearts so reverenced and loved without being overcome with emotion. Hours passed. We met him face to face, felt the touch of his hands, basked in the light of his smile. And still we had not been overcome by any mighty wave of irresistible feeling. And still we wondered, days passed. The life in Akka had received us, had taken us into its loving arms. And still we were wondering when and how was to come that mighty sweep of power. It did not come. So it wasn't until they went home and they started thinking about what happened on their pilgrimage. And this is the conclusion they finally came to. We realized at last that when we first entered his presence so quietly, it was as if we had been taken gently up by the first swell of a giant tidal wave, raised so tenderly that we had become scarcely conscious of the uplift. We'd been carried on and on higher and higher until as the tidal wave may sweep over coast, rocks, and even cities, we had been carried high over all worldly consciousness, and it had become to us as if the world were not. As this realization came to us, we prayed that we might never again be upon that lower spiritual level where we had been when that wave lifted us and bore us so high into the realms of absolute, common sense, unquestioning conviction. Well, people tended to get what they needed when they came into the presence of Abdu'l Baha. The difference here was that George and Rose were all already very spiritual people. Abdu'l Baha did not have to teach him any lessons at that point. So they got their, she got her heart's desire. Okay, now I'd like to tell you about two young lads, Wendell and William Dodge, 17 and I think 19 years old. Very exuberant young fellows from the US. Well, they went on pilgrimage in 1901. And like most pilgrims, they met Abdu'l Baha for the first time at lunchtime or dinner time. So they walked in, they saw him there, and they greeted him, they smiled, they talked, and all during lunch, they talked. They had a grand old chat. Well, afterwards, they went their way, and later on, one of the Persians came up and says, you don't act like that around Abdu'l Baha. You have to treat him with extreme reverence. Well, they felt really bad. They figured they'd done everything possible wrong. Uh, this fellow told him, when you come, in, come into a room where Abdu'l Baha is, the first thing you do is you bow your head, you cross your arms, and you sit down, and you don't speak unless he speaks to you. So the next time they were going for lunch, they said, well, we're going to do it right this time. So they walked in, they bowed their heads, they crossed their arms, they sat down at their seats, and Abdu'l Baha never even looked at them, much less spoke to them. Not a word, as though they didn't even exist. So now they're really confused. They don't. They thought they were trying to do the right thing, but that obviously hadn't worked. So they talked about it and said, no, maybe we're just bad actors. So let's try the other way. At least he was friendly then. So the next day they walk in, they greet him and they talk to him and Adabah jumps up, runs over to him, gives him a great big bear hug and says, that's the way you're supposed to be, be natural. The significance being there are many ways to be reverent. There are many ways to interact with people, many ways to pray. And as long as they're within the framework of the Baha'i faith, they're all good. There is no one way to do things. The next is uh, how Abdu'l Baha treated his enemies. It was a Scottish missionary named Mrs. Ramsey. And she'd been down in Palestine for years and years, trying to convert Muslims into Christians and absolutely failing to do so. Well, she had a little dispensary, a Christian missionary dispensary 
in the same building that Abdu'l-Baha lived in. As you went in the entryway, she was immediately on the right and Abdu'l-Baha would go and turn left to his places. Well, if she saw him on the street, if she could, she'd cross over to the other side. If she couldn't, she'd pull her hood down over her face so she wouldn't have to see him. Well, one day in that little narrow entryway, Abdu'l-Baha corners her and he walks up to her and he says, Mrs. Ramsey, do you know how much I love you? This definitely was not the question she was expecting to be asked. So she says, how much? And he says, as much as you hate me. <laughs> so when she finally decided it was time to head back to, uh, to Scotland, she didn't have enough money to go and take her stuff with her. So after Baha paid her way for her and her uh, luggage to go back home. So that's how he treats his enemies. Okay, now we're going to talk about an atheist who shows up in Akka with an ugly little dog. And this atheist just kind of barged into the house, didn't ask permission, just kind of charged in and uh, declared that she was an atheist. And not only was she an atheist, she was a Boston atheist. And Boston atheists were world renowned for not having anything to do with imaginary beings. Well, Abdu'l-Baha proceeds to tell her about the unity of God. And she sits there for a while with his little dog. And after a while, she says, you know, you're really good at spontaneously composing poetry. Of course, all he was doing was giving her quotations from Baha'u'llah. Well, then finally, the little dog was too restless and jumping up and down her arms, so she, she had to go. But as she walked out, she said, when I, I came here, I was extremely uh, sure of myself as an atheist. You've planted a little teeny doubt in my mind. So I'm going to come back and we'll, we'll straighten this thing out. And her parting thing as she walked out the door was, if your God is as good as you say he is, make him change my mind. Well, she went away and came back a couple days later and she was just really bedraggled. She hadn't been able to sleep for the last two days. The dog had not been very good. And she was not, a, she was in a state. And she was demanding answers. That little teeny niggle that she left with had grown considerably by this time. And so she sat through another uh, talk of Abdu'l-Baha talking about the unity of God until the point the dog just couldn't sit still anymore. Well, then she was going on a tour. And she said, when I come back from this tour, we'll get back together again. Well, after her tour, she came in. And... Uh, but she didn't just come to, to see him. She moved into the house and said, I'm not leaving until we figure this thing out. And that little niggle had grown considerably. So anyway, the first time she came in to meet Abdu'l-Baha that time, she left the dog back in the room and she was actually listening to Abdu'l-Baha. And then over the next several days, she continued to get more and more respectful in her listening and more and more understanding of what he was saying. And by the end of a week, she not only believed in God, she'd become a Baha'i. Now, Inez Cook went on uh, pilgrimage. Oh, oh, one thing I have to back up. One thing, whenever Abdu'l-Baha found somebody who did not have a spiritual attitude that he could fan, he would just tell funny stories. He would not give him any serious, serious spiritual talks. So here is Inez Cook. She goes on pilgrimage in 1919. And for her, it was an absolutely amazing event. She was just blown away by the whole thing. Well, she was so excited, she went home and she told two of her best friends, who were not Baha'is, that they really had to go on pilgrimage themselves and meet out to Baha. She helped organize a trip and off they go. 
when they came back, one of her friends said, oh, our trip was wonderful. Well, tell me all about it, Inez said. Well, first of all, we visited the pyramids in Egypt. Yes, yes, go on, Inez said somewhat impatiently. And then we went to the Holy Land. Yes, yes. And we went to Jerusalem and visited all the holy places. Yes, yes. And then we went to Mount Carmel and we met your master. Yes. And he invited us into his home and we had meals with him and his family. Why, they were the nicest people. And he told us funny stories and they took us to beautiful gardens and shrines. It was wonderful. Inez paused. Is that all? Is that all? What do you mean? We had a wonderful time. Thank you for arranging it. So, neither of her friends had become Baha'is, and she did not understand this. The following year, in 1921, Inez returned to the Holy Land for a second pilgrimage. During this second visit, she decided to ask Abdul Baha why her friends had not become Baha'is. My friends came here, they met you, they visited the holy places, but they were unaffected. When I came here, I was completely intoxicated with the greatness of the cause. Why didn't they become Baha'is? Abdul Baha's answer was, at the gate of the garden, some stand and look within, but do not care to enter. Others step inside, behold its beauty, but do not penetrate far. Still others encircle the garden, inhaling the fragrance of the flowers and having enjoyed its full beauty, pass out again by the same gate. But there are always some who enter and becoming intoxicated with the splendor of what they behold, remain for life to tend the garden. Inez took that quotation back to her two friends. One was unaffected by it, but the other was very affected. She ended up becoming a Baha'i very quickly after that. Okay, Abdul Baha gave people all sorts of interesting lessons and, and suggestions on how to do things. One was about how you teach children. And we have a couple examples of how he suggested teaching children. <laughs> Parents must discover that calling or profession for which their children show the most aptitude and inclination. And then they must train them in the same by engaging their attention in that direction. For sooner or later, a child will make known his natural abilities and gifts. To train his natural abilities in a manner conflicting with them is not right. It has often been seen that parents have forced their child to study in some field desired by them for which the child himself had no natural aptitude. Then the child squandered years of his life in that field, making no progress whatever, showing that his abilities lay elsewhere. On another occasion, Abdu'l-Bahá said that children should not be taught by cramming their heads with dead formulas and historical dates. This is a mistake. The elements of sciences, arts, crafts, etc. must be taught to them through object lessons, as though they are playing and amusing themselves with sunshine, with music. And I think that's what the Baha'i children's class materials are trying to do, is trying to follow that, that line. Okay. Now, Abdu'l-Bahá spent a lot of time well, he's a prisoner, and other times, sometimes uh, he was really confined. There was one period of several years where he was actually confined to the, within the walls of the prison city of Akka. He was not allowed to leave. And he was asked about, what was what is being a prisoner? Maybe you should ask to, to be let out. But this is his answer. 
certain officials in the city have asked me to write out a petition for them to offer higher authorities to obtain my release from this captivity. I told them, God forbid that I should write such a thing. This is far from what I would care to do. This imprisonment is a rest for me. There is no hardship in it. When we were in Haifa, we had to endure many troubles. That is, much of our time was taken up with responsibilities that could not be avoided, such as the encounters with people from outside. But now I rest, and my outside occupations are not even one half of what they were. How can I call this a prison? Okay. There was one time he was in Austria, and a lot of the people he was meeting kept talking about this one prince and said, you, know, you really have to go tell this prince about the faith. Obviously, he was a very popular prince. But this kept happening over and over. And finally, I think Abdu'l-Bahá got tired of hearing of this. And he said, it is not for the fountain to go to the thirsty one. The thirsty one should come to the fountain. And unfortunately, the prince didn't appear to be very thirsty. He never showed up at the fountain. Okay, and tell another intuitive story. Kenichi Yamamoto was the very first Baha'i of a Japanese background, he came into the faith in Hawaii. Well, when he came in in the early 1900s, you became a Baha'i by writing a letter to Abdu'l Baha. And so he was trying to write a letter, but he was trying to write it in English. And he spoke some English, but he really couldn't, couldn't write it. And after quite a few, very frustrating attempts. He went to the lady who taught him the faith and said, you know, I can't, I can't write this letter in English. And she said, well, write it in Japanese and see what happens. So Japanese characters going down the page, sends his letter off. The letter gets into to Aka and one of his secretaries uh, was reading it. And Antibaha looks over his shoulders and sees all these unusual characters going down the page and says, Ah, do you read Japanese? And the secretary said, no, of course I don't read Japanese. So Abdu'l-Bahá says, what are you gonna do about this letter? And the secretary thinks to himself, he thinks, just answer it like you always do. And so Abdu'l-Bahá then said, well, we'll just let Baha'u'llah inspire us and we'll write him back. When he wrote the letter and sent it off, uh, Kenichi got his letter, he looked at it and all the questions he'd asked got answered. So you don't need to write in English for him to understand. Okay, now there's a, we have an interesting story about multitasking. You know, again, women are good at, better at multitasking than men, but you hold no candles to Abdu'l-Bahá. Here's what Abdu'l-Bahá could do. <laughs> the master was busy re revealing verses. His pen moved extremely rapidly across the page. Meanwhile, he was conversing with the Iranian believers in Persian, with the Mufti in Arabic, and with the Mosarif and several of the Pashas in Turkish. All the while, his pen never stopped moving. The divine spirit had enveloped the atmosphere, and anyone who ventured a question was favored with an answer until that blessed tablet was completed and Abdul Baha sat the pen down. <laughs> so that's a good example of multitasking. <laughs> Now, one thing that happened when you listen to Abdu'l-Bahá talk to people, he always needed a translator, except for children, who he never seemed to need a translator for, and occasional other times. One time, Wesley Tudor Pohl from Bristol went down 
and this is in Egypt. And he walked into Abdu'l-Baha's presence and there was nobody else there. And they started having a grand chat, discussing all sorts of things. And this went on for a good, good length of time until suddenly another English speaking person walked into the room. And the moment he came in the room, Wesley Tudor Pole no longer could, could understand Abdu'l-Baha. Abdu'l-Baha had been speaking Persian, he'd been speaking English, but it was no problem until this other person walked in the door. So they were speaking at a level that we don't usually understand. Okay, we, I think most people are probably familiar with a book called Some Answered Questions. This was when Laura Barney went in and asked questions in order to get answers. This took place over several years. And she ended up having a secretary who would come in and, and help record all the answers. This was kind of a difficult time because this always ha happened at lunchtime. And what, ha what needed to go was she would ask a question of the, and tell it to the interpreter. The interpreter would have to make sure he understood her question. Then she, he would pass it on to Abdu'l-Baha. And Abdu'l-Baha would have to make sure he understood what was being asked. Then he would give an answer to the secretary and make sure the secretary understood it. Then the secretary would give it back to Laura and, of course, had to make sure she understood it. And there was also a Persian uh, secretary doing the same thing in Persian. Well, this got to be very difficult sometimes for the, uh, the poor translator, for the poor secretary. And this is what happened one day when he wasn't having a chance to eat. <laughs> Abdu'l-Baha asked, how do you translate the word Madarjim into English? Interpreter, she responded. Then he asked, what is Gorozna in English? Hungry, she replied. Then with his blessed finger, he pointed at me, Yunus Khan, and exclaimed, hungry interpreter, hungry interpreter. <laughs> okay, a couple days later, they're talking about the non-existence of evil. And Abdu'l-Baha predicts her next question. He says, now she will ask why then did God create the scorpion? Hardly a minute had passed when Laura asked the question. Abdu'l-Baha said, what did I tell you? Now in response, tell her that this is the nature of things. It is true that the scorpion is evil. However, it is only evil in relation to us. In relation to its own environment, it is not evil. This poison is its means of defense. With its stinger, it protects itself. But since the nature of the poison is not conducive to our well-being, we consider it evil. So interesting ways of looking at things. Okay, now we have a story about Louise Waite. Now she went into the presence of Shogi or Abdu'l-Baha at lunchtime one day and with a very specific request in her mind that she never asked. She thought, oh, if only Abdu'l-Baha would take my heart and empty it of every preconceived idea and earthly desire, just as one would take this glass and empty it, and then refill it with the divine love and understanding. It was just a flash of consciousness, yet Abdu'l-Baha seemed to read it. He was in the midst of his discourse. He stopped abruptly and addressed his attendant who served the friends. He said but a few words in Persian to him, then considered his, continued his conversation. The attendant came quietly up behind Louise, reached over, removed her glass from the table, and taking it over to the corner of the room, emptied its contents of water into the water basin, then returned the empty glass to its former place. 
Still no one noticed what had happened. Abdu'l-Baha continued to speak, the while reaching over and taking the water bottle on the table in his hand, and in a most casual manner, still talking on the subject of his discourse, refilled her empty glass. Her heart was filled with unspeakable joy. This proved conclusively that the innermost thoughts and innermost desires of the hearts of all present were an open book to Abdu'l-Baha, and his love encompassed all. Okay, another little story. An American lad shows up. He was a brand new Baha'i. He arrived in Akka on a ship. We don't know what he was doing, but uh, he had a short layover in, in, the, in the town. So he jumped off the boat and ran up to the house of Abdu'l-Baha. He didn't know you were supposed to have an appointment. He just <laughs> ran up the door and knocked on the door and asked to see Abdu'l-Baha. Abdu'l-Baha invited him in. And this is what happens. One of Abdu'l-Baha's interpreters was t telling this story of a certain young American lad who blew in one day to see the master. The steamer was in port. He came to the house in Akka while Abdu'l-Baha was still living in the fortress and asked if he could see the master. Abdu'l-Baha came in. A number of Orientals were in the room. Abdu'l-Baha began to speak some words of welcome to be translated by the interpreter. The young man said, Tell him I'm very glad to see him. Abdu'l-Baha said, I'm very glad to see you. This boy was just bubbling over. The young man said, tell him I heard of his cause in the West, and I believe and I want to devote myself to his service. Abdu'l-Baha said, very good. The young man took a pocket watch out and pried off the back. He said, I'm very much in love with a girl, and here's her photograph. The interpreter demurred a little bit at translating this, because in the Orient they don't usually speak of these things before strangers. The master asked the interpreter to translate it, and he did. The master looked at the photograph. The young fellow said, I pray that she may become a worker in your cause. Abdu'l-Baha said, she will be accepted. Her service will be very acceptable. The young man said to the interpreter, Ask him if he doesn't think she's very beautiful. The interpreter simply could not interpret this before all those people, but the master insisted upon knowing. And then he said, yes, she is very beautiful. She has the smile of the kingdom on her face. The young man was very pleased. Abdu'l-Baha started to say something again, but the young man had opened the other side of his watch and said, well, I'm in a great hurry. My ship is sailing. Tell him goodbye. And rushed off. The old Persians there were simply paralyzed. But the master said afterward, I look below the surface. That young man's heart is very pure. I wish I had more friends of that type. Okay, we're getting close to the end here. So there's a few more. There's a lady named Margaret Morton. She went on pilgrimage at one point. And when she arrived in Akka, she was really, really worried because she had ulcers. And she heard that they had these strange foods, this uh, Persian rice with all sorts of unusual spices that she thought was really going to create havoc when she, she had to eat. So the first day she goes in for dinner. And what's on the menu? Persian rice. So she figures this is not going to be a very pleasant evening. But Abdu'l-Baha himself was serving, so she was... She ate every single bit because he served it to her. So 
she'd finished and you know just kind of bemoaning what's going to happen to her that night but she'd no sooner finished and Abdul Baha's back and put more rice on her plate well she goes, oh this is going to be a very unpleasant evening now but he served it to her so she ate it she finishes the second serving and Abdul Baha's back here's a third serving on her plate and she thought I'm going to die <laughs> well that she ate all that rice and that's the last time in her life she ever had troubles with her ulcers. So we don't know what spice that Abdu'l-Bahá adds that maybe the rest of you Persians don't, but you ought to find that out. <laughs> okay, now we have a story about two Arab fellows. They showed up at Abdu'l-Bahá's house, one after the other, just minutes apart. And these two guys hated each other with a passion. So Abdu'l-Bahá takes them into a room together, and here they are. Each of them sat there inwardly growling at his enemy. At first, the beloved spoke to them in such a manner as to make them laugh. They did not want to laugh. Neither did they want to look at each other, but they couldn't help doing both. Thus, the ice was broken. Then with his deep insight into the dispositions of these men, he said, the life of man is but a few days, then death overtakes him. Is it not foolish to attach one's heart to the worldly love and hate? Happiness is the king of our hearts. Let's not part from it. If the candle of happiness is ignited in the chamber of the heart, all the foreboding gloom of evil suggestions will be dispelled. My home is the home of peace. My home is the home of joy and delight. My home is the home of laughter and exaltation. Whosoever enters through the portals of this home must go out with gladsome heart. This is the home of light. Whosoever enters here must become illumined. This is the home of love. Those who come in must learn the lessons of love. Thus may they know how to love each other. Then he related to them story after story, making them now laugh and now serious. Finally, when he observed the time had come, he got up from his seat and asked them to kiss each other and be true friends afterwards. Is it not much better to be friends than enemies? Then he went into another room and brought candy and two silk handkerchiefs for each one. By this token, you are plighted together forever. And they remain friends for the rest of their lives. So a good way to look at life. <clears throat> I'm going to end it looking at uh, Abdu'l-Bahá's knighthood. Well, during the First World War, there was a great famine in the area. And Abdu'l-Bahá had had his farmers over in the Sea of Galilee area, the Jordan Valley, growing all sorts of things. And they carefully stored these things away. So when the famine hit, uh, he was able to supply food to people of the whole region. And when the British army arrived in, in Haifa after capturing it from the, uh, the Turks, uh, they'd outrun their supply chain and Abdu'l-Bahá had corn for them. So the English decided to give him a knighthood. They worry somewhat about whether Abdu'l-Bahá was accept a cruciform uh, award yeah. from them, but they, they figured he probably would at the end. Well, they kept going in, and Abdu'l-Bahá really wasn't too eager to, to get this, but uh, they asked his secretary, would he, would he finally break down and accept this award? And what his secretary says was, Abdu'l-Bahá has not received decorations from kings. He decorates kings. However, inasmuch as he has accepted to be persecuted by the Turkish government for 40 years, he will no doubt accept the honor you wish to bestow upon him. 
Well, then came the day of the uh, the great celebrate, the great award, and they sent him a, a their fanciest car to collect him. Well, he couldn't be found anywhere. Well, back at the the governor general's house, they had a band. They had the walkway lined with soldiers with their rifles standing at attention. Um, they were ready for all this pomp and ceremony, but they couldn't find Abdul Baha to, to do this with. Well, Abdul Baha had. Uh, he knew about the car, but he left and went, he went and had his, uh, his spandiar, his driver, hook up his carriage, hook up the horses to the carriage. And he rode the carriage over, but he didn't go to the main gate where they were all waiting for him. He went to a back gate, went in through a garden and just kind of emerged in the middle. Well, the governor general was kind of taken back by this, but he recovered quickly enough and he gave his little speech and presented the ward and Abdu'l-Bahá said a short prayer. So then they figured, okay, now he'll walk down the way and we'll have the band playing and everybody will salute him. But he turned around and disappeared in the garden, went back out the back gate and jumped in his carriage and went away. Well, the governor general said before this that uh, he felt that the English were doing a great honor, giving a great honor to Abdu'l-Bahá. But after it was over with, he realized the honor was being given to them by him accepting the reward. Anyway, that's, that's our basic storytelling package of what it was like to meet Abdu'l-Bahá. Well, I guess we open it back up for whatever happens next. Thank you ever so much. I'm obviously there's so much that could be said about Abu Baha'i was thinking other things. We'll have to have you back lots of times. <laughs>